if we don't have any real problems in front of us, we're going to manufacture them. But this isn't about creating some sterile environment where there are no problems. I think there are problems in the world. The key is to reorient ourselves to those problems as gaps. From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Welcome to the CTO studio. Today, we talk to Mark Hunter, the author of The Brink, How Great Leadership is Invented. Mark is the founder of Pinnacle Coaching, where he works with executive leaders, and he is a special guest because Britt and I picked his book to work through in our seven CTOs peer groups this trimester. We dig into the myths of leadership, the essence of courage, and something quite particular to the role of CTO solving problemos. Hi, all. Welcome back to another podcast in the CTO studio. I'm very, very excited because today Etienne and I are joined by Mark Hunter, who is a fellow coach, a fellow leader in coach training and an author. He's an incredible person that supports many communities in their leadership and in their training of coaching. So Mark, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm so excited to share that Mark is with us because we are going to talk to him about his book, The Brink, How Great Leadership is Invented. So Mark, what will you tell us about yourself? Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. About me. So I'm a coach. I've been a coach for 27 years. I started coaching because I found myself working in a field and an organization that wasn't providing me with what I wanted or needed or where I saw myself career-wise. So the big thing I saw missing was leadership, any conversation about leadership, uh, my own leadership and what I needed to develop or the leadership around me. So I, I ended up hiring a coach and that's what has me be here 27 years later is I loved so much the work that he did with me that I ended up wanting to do that work for other people and uh, never looked back. So currently I work with executives, teams mostly uh, around leadership, change leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, but mostly disruption, like how do leaders effectively disrupt and innovate in teams, still make, making sure that they're creating strong relationships and really being strong team builders, not just team members. So it's a dynamic aspect of the coaching world that I really love. I live in Vermont with my dogs and my fiance and my soon-to-be stepchildren. Loving every minute of that too. You know, this work isn't just about leading organizations to larger ROIs. It's about the work we do as humans also with each other. So uh, a lot of the work that I've learned as a coach over the years is directly applicable to relationship, all types of relationships. It's been one of the fun things to learn about coaching and about relationships themselves too. It's amazing how important the context is in soon-to-be stepchildren. That's right. <laughs> it's very specific. Fiancé means incoming, uh -huh. not outgoing. Okay. That is correct. <laughs> it's a very different. That's, <laughs> That's the intention, yes. <laughs> soon-to-be stepchildren. I love that. Welcome in the CTO studio, Mark. I have been really been loving the book. Very excited to dig into this, but also very excited for all our members, all our members in seven CTOs to read the book, enjoy the metaphor and love to chat some more about that. Our CTOs are obviously leading tech companies, building technology teams, managing large or small tech budgets, are in the C-suite with an executive presence that can always be coached. And Britt and I are building out the forum content and what our groups discuss every month. And so we're very excited to have the Brink as one of the source materials that we use. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. And just starting with that, we've introduced one-on-one -on -one coaching, one-on-one -on -one mentoring inside of 7CTOs. And for me, coaching and leadership is so connected. Would you speak about how you've taken what you've learned from coaching and applied it to your work with teams and leadership? Absolutely. You know, the things that I learned from coaching have to do mostly with context and relationship. If I have to boil it down to a very, very um, simplistic set of things, 
it's context and relationship. So those two things are so directly applicable to leadership and teams because any aspect of leadership or any team you work on is going to involve other human beings. Fundamentally, the interaction with and having to partner with other people to produce results over time is the challenge and context and relationship building tend to be the building blocks for that sustainability and scalability of those models. I think that the most direct thing though is that these are sort of timeless aspects of human relationship and context, understanding the context, you know, understanding the, the audience, being able to read the room, environmental understanding of what's going on around me and where I am and what's needed in the moment. Those are all aspects of leadership. Building relationship, not just with myself, with other people, but also causing relationship to be built with people on my teams, having them distinguish and build and develop their own relationship to our goal, their relationship to failure, their relationship to trust. All these are, these are relationships. So when I say relationship, I sort of mean it with a capital R, meaning not just me and you, but the relationship to the work we're doing, to the possibility of success, or relationship to the possibility of failure as well. So these are all big, big conversations when you're dealing with any one person around their own leadership, how to identify context and also how to build relationship and rebuild and repair relationship when needed. That's how I see those things relating most. And coaching is fundamentally works in those areas. It helps people see in their blind spots and helps people identify things that they didn't know they didn't know (laughs) and helps people grow in ways they didn't know they needed to grow even. So there's an aspect of coaching that I think helps us to sustainably and scalably grow over time ourselves, but also the people and teams we play on. Yeah. And and I will say that the context conversation was probably one of the biggest shifts I experienced in my own exposure to the ontological world. Definitely content versus context, not only in how I coach people, but in retraining myself to look for what is the context from which we are operating versus getting into the he said, she said narratives. It's the thing that as a coach, it makes the most difference for the individual that you're coaching, but also ends up having the most impact on the people that are around those folks that are being directly coached. In other words, if you help somebody understand their contextual awareness, but also their contextual impact on the world around them, they tend to bring that understanding into new actions and new growth with other people in relationship on teams. So what I find is that if you have that contextual conversation repeatedly with clients as a coach, it creates a ripple effect around them. They start to build relationship more effectively with people around them in much shorter periods of time. Yeah. And I think that one of the things I love about context is it gets down into the heart of something so that you can actually start with the core. And I love that in the book, you kind of start with saying like, hey, here are the myths of leadership. Here's what we've all been trained in and what's kind of a miss with those things. Will you speak to, just like for you, even still to this day, what seem to be the biggest myths of leadership that when you go into executive teams, what are the ones you're finding are just like resounding? Thanks for asking that because it does change, I noticed. So when I wrote this book in 2014, I think one of the biggest myths was that somehow that people follow leaders automatically. That was sort of the one. If I had to point to the one that I saw most often, it was that, well, I'm a leader. I should just, I expect people to just follow me mostly because of title and hierarchical expectations. I would say today it's probably that leaders are somehow not afraid is probably one of the biggest ones. And the, and the other one is the first one, the first myth I list in the book, which is that some people are leaders and some people just aren't. People are born that way. So those are the, the myths that I see most often showing up now. Specifically, this idea that leaders aren't afraid is the one that I find most interesting. Oftentimes, the conversation about fearlessness shows up. And this is in team settings as well as individual leadership coaching as well. But this idea that leaders, you know, the best leaders are fearless and have no fear and And I've found that to be, especially when times are challenging, like we've just come out of a few years of COVID-19 and and all kinds of civil unrest and other challenges in the world. When when we come into situations like that, we tend to contract, in my experience, to the things that are most familiar. And what's most familiar for folks is, I can't let fear get in my space. I'm not allowed to be afraid. And leaders aren't afraid, so I'm going to occur as unafraid. And We saw burnout, we saw people feeling siloed and alone and all kinds of 
impacts of a sustained period of time where people were sort of having to be more and more self-reliant than they'd ever been because we're not connected the same way we were before COVID. And so I'm experiencing that this idea that leaders are fearless is the thing that I'm talking about most with clients. Yeah. And I want to jump in because that spoke to me just so powerfully around fear. Really, I love what you said around courage being action in the presence of fear. I was reflecting on my own dealings with fear, and I guess for me, it's a constant avoidance. Like, how do I avoid the situation of fear? Or if fear shows up, then I'm doing something wrong, or the situation is not balanced. And I find that my go-to mechanism for that is to give my power away. And I think in a CTO, CEO situation, it's like, okay, I'm going to avoid the fear of confronting deadlines, assumptions, challenges, authority, give my power away under the auspices of, we'll get this done, don't worry, we'll work through this, and to avoid that at all cost. And then at the same token, the CTO's drive for problem solving. I don't want to get into gaps right now. I want to, I want to have a whole section on that. But just the fear that comes up when I can't solve this problem or what does it say about me? And like you said, one of the myths is leaders require followers. What does it say about my followers if I can't do all this stuff? And I think that that what's been present with me over the last few days, even as I meditate on what you've written, is that fear can actually be such a wonderful, empowering thing. You know, it's like I feel the fear, therefore I am called to something really amazing right now. And let me draw on that energy. Yeah, there are a lot of things that you just brought up there that I think are key. But I think first and foremost is this idea that somehow fear is bad. And it's not just, and you hinted at it when you sort of talked about, well, what does that mean about me that I'm afraid? Fear isn't just, doesn't just stop us from doing external things and taking external risks. It also creates shame. You know, there's oftentimes internally what we do with being afraid is, we don't tell anyone else because it's bad. It's even, uh, I think, mostly identified with weakness to be afraid. So we don't tell anybody we're afraid. We shame ourselves for feeling that way. And we sort of suffer whatever we're doing or avoid the pieces that are scary. And we do it in ways that are subtle and undercover. So the first and foremost thing that needs to be healed is this relationship with fear. That fear is somehow something to be avoided. That And it's even more insidious in some ways that I'm entitled not to feel afraid. (laughs) I shouldn't feel a fear at all. Fearlessness. Be fearless, right? Yeah. And my my argument is that there is nobody that's fearless. I personally have never met anyone. (laughs) I'm certainly not fearless. There are things I'm afraid of that that you aren't. And there are things that Brittany's afraid of that we aren't. And That's true for every human being. So you might find somebody who's not afraid of standing up on stage in front of 3,000 people, but that doesn't mean they're not afraid of having Thanksgiving dinner with their family for for whatever reason. So foundationally, everybody's got fears. They're not right or wrong, good or bad. They're just there. The, The question that I always challenge my clients around isn't how to get rid of or kill fear, because it's impossible, can't do it, but it's actually how to operate effectively and powerfully in the presence of fear. And this isn't because, you know, we should surmount every challenge. This is not a macho ego thing. It's really about if fear is going to be a constant, like there's going to be things I'm going to be afraid of in life. How do I be effective and present in my life, not just my work, but in my life with fear being there? And I think that's where the definition of courage comes from, right? Where you're taking action in the presence of fear. And one of the things I love about the term courage is that it requires fear. There is no courageous person that's fearless. That's just a misnomer, right? I mean, if you are courageous, it means there's something you're afraid of that you're taking action around anyway, alongside your fear. And I love what you pointed to because this opens doors that we otherwise can't see. If I'm oriented relationally to fear to avoid it, like I got to do whatever I can do to avoid fear, fundamentally what I have to do is contract. I have to get smaller, more predictable, I have to install more control and controls around my world so that there's nothing that I'm afraid of that I'll ever even venture into. And so we have to get smaller, our world gets smaller, our communications, our relationships, everything gets smaller and more controlled. 
The problem with this, of course, is that it doesn't create any space for relationship, team building, leadership, growth, scalability, sustainability. None of those things are possible from there. So fear in my sort of postulating here is that if, if you take fear and change your relationship to it, we don't have to protect ourselves from it. We need to learn to be in a different relationship with it. And I like that because that conversation, there's no, there's no one right relationship to fear that there is to have, but there's an infinite number of options other than we must never be afraid. Absolutely. And I think to see that if my normal reaction to fear is avoidance, addictive behavior, whatever it's called, then when I detect that that's happening, I can be like, oh, hang on, I am responding to something. There's this other way I can do it, which is source from it and draw energy from it and then show up. And, and that's been very, very enlightening. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that has to happen before you can do that is stop making fear wrong. <laughs> stop making ourselves wrong for having it. Stop making it wrong for existing. <laughs> we have to first and foremost stop beating it up. And then we're not making ourselves wrong for being afraid. And then we can take a look at what you're pointing to, which is the opportunity in fear. The things that scare us tend to expand our comfort zone. Our comfort zone gets bigger, but then our comfort zone at a certain point stops being the point. In other words, if we change our relationship to fear, our comfort zone stops being our choice point. This is not the parameter around which I choose to take action. Is it comfortable or not? Stops being a relevant question. Like, okay, let's put that aside. Because now my relationship to fear is, well, that's scary. And I'm curious about what I can learn from it. So now I start moving towards fear, comfort, discomfort, like, don't like, feel like it, don't feel like it. These things stop being relevant choice points because fear now becomes almost a guidepost. So now I'm curious about the thing that is scary over there and what I can glean from it. And I think at a certain point when I've worked with clients for a while around fear, what the most sort of sophisticated leaders do is effectively, if they're not playing in their fear or being courageous around their fear for a certain period of time, their job is to go create some challenges that are outside their comfort zone. So in other words, this isn't just about allowing fear when it shows up, but at some point at the highest level of leadership, actually going and looking for the places that are scary. If I'm actually a leader who's not playing in any games that are scary or challenging or instill any fear in me, then maybe it's time to shake things up and create some things that will expand the opportunity for me and for my teams and my company, you name it. I got that from your Kilimanjaro experience. As I was reading that, I was thinking, okay, what am I doing that is just making me a little afraid? And then that's speaking to what you said. To insert that stuff in your life if you've somehow let it fall by the wayside, I think is a good exercise. Is I think I went and bought my lift tickets for 2023. You know, it's like I'm going to, I love that. On the Kilimanjaro thing quickly, I just want to quickly ask you, man, that scene where you described the one step forward and then sort of sliding back, like the final ascent, your shin deep in the black stuff or what was it? Yeah, it's volcanic scree. So that last, that last few hundred meters is all, it's sort of like the consistency of baby powder, but it's black. And you sink in it and slide, and you sink in it and slide. And so there are switchbacks and steep parts, but it's challenging emotionally <laughs> because you, you are taking a lot of steps forward, but you're also sliding back all at the same time. And it's sort of like trying to swim uphill. It's a challenge that's interestingly not just physical, right? It's also emotional. And I, it's one of the reasons I like the analogy of a mountain to leadership and to leadership development, because there are aspects of leadership development that aren't just working harder, longer, being louder, or producing more results. A lot of it is overcoming some of these emotional barriers, like you know our negative relationship with fear and things like that, that actually have us reach the pinnacle of our, of our leadership. Yeah, it, this conversation is really interesting because I can place myself in so many conversations with clients in the executive space and, you know, often more CTOs that get to this part of their career and a lot of fear shows up because they need to be a certain way that they've never had to be before or produce a certain level of leadership that they've never really been expected to before. And it always starts with, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, great. 
you and everybody else. And they're like, no, that can't be true. And I'm like, yes, I promise you three people already said it to me today. Right. So there's this internal relationship as you're talking about Mark, where you realize that fear is part of the job and your role as a leader is to shift your relationship to fear so that you can be with it. And then I see that the next level or the next thing I'm so often asked after they've had that for a few weeks and they've created some transformation there is, well, how do I actually now bring this to my team? Like, how do I let them know that this is what I'm up to and this this is what I see for us? Can you speak to that part? Like when it moves from being a self-relationship to fear to a conversation about fear with your whole team? Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, I like out loud conversations about this. So first, I've got to be willing to in my. Wait, you don't mind your you don't mind your conversations, your leaders. I don't mind my conversations. No, (laughs) but sometimes leaders will will go and sort of presume that the people that are on my team have done all this work and understand everything I'm talking about, and so they we expect them to meet us where we are, and we have to back up and meet them where they are. So I think first and foremost, it's being willing to have that out loud conversation, not just mind it, but also not presume that everybody gets it. Because most of our culture, if you really get back down to the roots of it, most of our culture is built around the avoidance of fear, the avoidance of discomfort. We've become addicted to this idea that we can eliminate fear and that we can actually create sustainable comfort that's going to go on indefinitely. It's this sort of pipe dream that's been sold to us. And so we default to that. Most people just do. When you start shifting your relationship to fear, the first presumption has to be that not everybody else is doing the same thing yet. And so we're going to meet them where they are. First, we have, to, we have to not make fear wrong. We have to not make their relationship to fear wrong and ours right. That's the biggest trap I think leaders fall into is that do it like I do. And that's not the answer either. It's having this conversation with them like, hey, listen, we are actually are playing in the unknown together as a team. Most teams and organizations are built because they're trying to create something bigger than the way I talk about it in the book, bigger than you can see the other side of. I know what it looks like, but I don't know how we're going to get there exactly. And we're going to have to figure it out together. So we're going to enter the unknown together. Normalizing the experience of fear as we go explore the unknown together, I think is the first step. Hey, this is going to be scary. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to be in it together. None of that's wrong. And if you have a reaction to it or something you need around it, speak up and let's be in it together. That's the first way is to bring people along rather than calling them out or sort of making them wrong in in any way, shape, or form for the way they currently relate to fear. I would have it you're also describing enrollment. And I feel like we talk a lot about enrollment as coaches and you talk about it in the book. Can you actually speak for a second why enrollment is so important in leadership and what its role is? Absolutely. So if you're a team member, and you're doing something or taking on the team's goal or mission or vision because you have to, because you should, because you were ordered to do it, but you have no real attachment or investment in that goal or ownership over that mission itself. If you're not invested in it sufficiently, then the problem is that when the going gets tough, and it will, it's not a matter of if, when the going gets tough along the way to our goal, it's going to be much easier to quit let things slip, drop balls and things like that. So the idea is when someone's enrolled in something, they see what's in it for themselves to do that thing or hit that goal. It's, that's the bottom line of enrollment is it? you know, it's not because I told you so from authority or hierarchy. It's that we decided to do this because I see what's in it for me. You see what's in it for you. And we see what's in it for us. That's the short form of enrollment, basically. So from there, people are going to run with the ball without having to be instructed. They don't have to be managed, controlled, told what to do every step of the way because they actually have some investment. They have some skin in the game and they see why this thing matters to them sort of intrinsically. Then they're going to be co-leaders along the way with you. They're going to be partners in the places where things get challenging and stuck. They're going to be willing to be courageous in the face of their fear because this thing matters to them somehow now. And that's why Enrollment is such an invaluable and effective tool in teams and leadership. Yeah, it feels like it's the thing that you're obviously in relationship with your boss or your direct reports or the people on your team because you're all there together with a common goal. But if 
that's all there is, then it is just like, do this because you're told and because you should and so on and so forth. But what enrollment does is it actually brings the humanity into it. Like you and I are here for a particular reason that makes us feel important and gives us something and provides something for us. And I think that when we lead from that place, we're so much more influential and impactful because we're actually connecting with someone not from a coworker place, but from a human place. Absolutely. And you said something key there, Brittany, that I want to just tie into, which is that we're all here for the same goal, right? On the team. We have to even be careful with that. <laughs> I work with a lot of organizations. If, if you go to some of the big office buildings in New York City, they're etched in marble in their lobbies is their mission and vision. 99% of the people walk through that lobby every day for decades, don't know what it means or how it pertains to them. So we might all be here for the same reason, but that reason means different things to every person in that building or on that team. So yes, we're all here, for example, to hit a certain KPIs or, or certain results as an organization or as a team. That's fine. But the enrolling piece is why that target matters to me. So yes, got it. We all have this number, whatever it is. 85%, whatever that means. But why does 85% matter to me? It's going to be different than why it matters to you. Some of us just like a challenge. Oh, that's going to be fun. Some of us like what that 85% means to the world around us in our community. For some of us, hitting 85% is going to get me my bonus and it's going to have me be able to put my kids through to the school they want to. So there are reasons that are intrinsic to the individual that connect the individual to the goal. So we can't presume that that reason we're all here means all the same things or as much to everybody else on the team. I think one of the big challenges there also is that leaders presume that everything that matters this much to me must matter as much to everyone else. And they find out the hard way, unfortunately, that that's just not the case. Yeah. And speaking of that, to me, is a gap in leadership, not meeting your people where they're at, assuming something, presuming to know where their drive is coming from. So I know Etienne really wants to talk about gaps because they're very interesting to us as coaches and to CTOs and engineers. You know, you say in the book that part of leadership is being able to spot gaps. How do people get good at spotting gaps? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Well, I mean, the way coaches and leaders get good at spotting gaps is, first of all, understanding that gaps are opportunities. Like I'm not spotting gaps in my team so as to shame somebody, terminate someone, make somebody wrong or scapegoat. I'm not looking for problems or gaps so as to blame. I'm looking for gaps so as to look at an opportunity for growth. That's what a gap actually is. So with that orientation, it becomes much easier to see them because it's not a negative we're chasing. We're not after finding something that's wrong. Now, look, It's tricky because, yes, we need problem solvers in organizations and on teams. We need people who can spot a problem or break something that's broken and fix it. That's great. The orientation to that, though, could be taken negatively. Like, I'm going to go fix that thing that's broken. Then I just become a fixer if I only relate to it from there. But if I relate to that as the closing of a larger gap, making us more effective, um, giving us the ability to communicate better. Oh, building trust, for example, on the team, then that act of fixing the thing that broke actually becomes the closing of a gap. And that there's an opportunity in the closing of a gap. So I think the way you get better at it, obviously, is going to be practice. But you've got to be looking for the specific thing that we're talking about here, not looking for what's wrong, but looking for the opportunity in a a space. So like an arbitrage of, of opportunity and possibility, right? Here's where we are. And oh, if we did this, we could get here. And this starts to become preemptive rather than reactive. Look, fixing problems, problem has to show up first, then we go fix it. Gaps, however, we can go create and identify they didn't exist before. We're inventing them effectively. I currently make X dollars. I want to make X plus 10. Well, I've manufactured that gap. That didn't have to happen. I just chose that. So this is a more empowered way of chasing a goal because I've created it. It didn't happen to me. Nobody's making me do it. I made this thing up. So now it's of my creation and I own it fully. I'll speak to how I related to that as the voice of CTO right now, which is, I found this interesting when you said leaders will identify the mountains that they want to 
scale or get to the top of. And then the gap gets created, basically, or manufactured, like you said. And it immediately made me think about, well, what if I'm creating a problem that didn't actually really exist? And I was specifically going towards you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and my mind was thinking, okay, well, if I want to have a mountain that has us maybe be more inclusive, well, am I now creating a gap that wasn't really a problem to start off with, but now because the mountain exists, I have now created a problem that didn't used to exist. So I can't just blissfully continue down the road of supreme efficiency and production. Now I've gone and created a whole set of issues that didn't used to be there. I love it. Well, I mean, you know, look, to your point, you're using the terminology very specifically here. So I'm glad you're doing that because if I go create a gap and you use DEI as an example, like, hey, I noticed that as an organization, we're here with DEI in terms of percentage of our diverse leadership. And we want to be here. We've manufactured that gap. But the, the challenge didn't get manufactured because we said this. Our goal got manufactured. So now this new threshold we're after as a DEI you know, initiative, we created that. Yeah. But the, what you're calling the problem of homogeneity or us all you know, looking, sounding, or thinking the same, that existed already. Whether we address it or not, it's up to us. My theory is that if you wait long enough, that thing will become a problem and you'll have to fix it later as something that's broken and now has to be fixed. And that's usually reactive and it's usually done in an emergency basis. If you manufacture that challenge or that goal or that gap because you say so, and for a reason that's empowered, like, hey, I see the value of DEI and there's all kinds of statistics to back that up, then that becomes something that we want rather than something that we have to do because we're behind the eight ball and we yeah. have no choice and we're on our heels. So that's really the opportunity. And I think the solution, I think what I'm hearing is the why is that the mountain? And I love throughout the book, you're talking about the importance of the mission and the vision and the why and the what for. And I found in myself that sometimes we might think that the gap in and of itself is some problem that has to be fixed. But we haven't actually identified the mountain that we're trying to climb. And I know this. I know <laughs> representing CTOs that they might be like, no, 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 we don't want problems. We are solving problems. We don't want to manufacture problems that don't need to exist in our path toward delivery and efficiency. So why make these things an issue? And then I loved the fact that it was like, no, we identify the mountain we do the hard work of the why and the why and the five whys and asking why again so that we can then say, well, the gaps are gorgeous because we know what we want to achieve. And I think the sort of top-down approach to where we want to be, what the gaps are and where we are, I think is a radically different way to think about it. In our space, we say we are here We've got to overcome these challenges because then that gives us this goal. And I think the upside downness of that is the genius from the brink.com. If we start with that, that sort of why first and why we need to fix this informs what we need to fix, then we get to choose the relationship we have to fixing it. Look, you just said something interesting that, you know, CTOs were problem solvers but we don't want problems. I would argue that that's not true. <laughs> I think if you're a problem solver, if this is what I do, I solve problems, two things tend to be true. First is I need problems to solve because it's my job. Secondly, if I don't have any problems to solve, one of the things that we do from human nature is we manufacture them. Anybody who's ever been in a long-term committed relationship with someone else we've all manufactured some problems in those relationships. When there isn't anything, it's because we don't feel good about something and we don't know how to articulate it. So we manufacture problems because ultimately we're problem solvers. <laughs> I think the same holds true for all of us who solve problems for a living. If we don't have any real problems in front of us, we're going to manufacture them. But this isn't about creating some sterile environment where there are no problems. I think there are problems in the world. The key is to reorient ourselves to those problems as gaps. I actually talk about in the book, 
choosing your mountain and remembering that your mountain might be a challenge you're already facing. You know, look, I'm sort of painting the rosy picture of, oh, there's something over there I want to challenge myself with. I'm going to choose it and then go do it. But there's also the version of this where, hey, there's this thing I've been struggling with for a long time and it's been a problem. And you know what? I'm going to actually reorient to that thing as a gap now. So it's not a problem anymore. Now I'm going to choose this as my mountain. It's that choice that gives us our power back. You talked about giving your power away. This is the way to take your power back from choices, challenges, people, is to choose the thing that you're challenged by. So now this problem that we've been struggling with for however long, if we reorient to it as a gap that we own and that we choose, now it becomes something that we're more empowered by. We can enroll, we can be enrolled in it and it becomes an opportunity that we can see rather than just a problem we have to get through. I think that's amazing. I love this idea of reorienting ourselves. As you're talking, however, I do consider the idea of obstacles. I want to just sit on that a little bit. The idea of we want problems to solve. I don't think all problems are created equally. For instance, the gap of, let's say, executive presence. Like, I am the CTO. So when I say we have to work on technical debt or we don't want to focus on this on the product roadmap because of this technical complication. I want people to trust me. I have the title. I am the person. And yet, you're not seen as a first-class citizen of the C-suite. You have a tenuous relationship with everybody in the uh, C-suite. You have a stereotypical way that you show up. That's a problem. But that's not necessarily a problem that all people will say, oh, great, I have a mountain, there's a gap, I want to step in the gap. You know, that, that's the image I have. I was going to say, and like based on what Mark just shared, to me, that is like a great avoidance of power. And when choosing to acknowledge the gap and step into it, we are reclaiming our power. Then one could deduce that not choosing it and it, relating to it as a problem is a great way to be like, not my problem, not my fault. This is already here. And I think it, it brings in a really important aspect of leadership. In our forums, we talk a lot about power and influence and how this relates to leadership. You know, there's an interesting thing happening where people like know that power is needed to lead powerfully. <laughs> And people really are uncomfortable with holding power or relating to themselves as powerful. And I've just been seeing that a lot lately who are like, no, 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 I, I don't want to talk about me having power. Like, let's not talk about that. So I don't know. Is there anything you two would share about that with regards to this conversation of avoiding power or choosing it and being intentional about it? Well, Brittany, the thing you shared about the value, the real payoff to not having my power is that things happen to me. And there's a benefit to that because I get to be a victim and we can always identify with each other as victims. Like, oh, well, you know, the market, it's doing what it does, right? And we're interest rates or that person over there on the team. We can easily fall into a comfort zone around being victimized. That thing happened to me. So first and foremost, the game here with creating gaps is that it takes away the ability to be victimized by what we're up to. So now I'm climbing this mountain because I say so, even if it was given to me or assigned to me or any of that stuff, I can own it now. But you're right. I mean, there are people, it's equally scary, I've found with clients I work with too, to have my power and take my power back from this victimized context, because now there's nothing to complain about. If we rely on complaints and problems happening to me as our story, sort of the story we tell ourselves, if you take that away, now everything that happens I get to own. Now everything that happens, I'm the source of. And I liken this to the ability to say, well, I'm going to own the good and the bad stuff that happens, however you, know, however you want to define that. That's not a comfortable thing to be able to do. It's an aspect of leadership that most of us sort of unconsciously avoid because I don't want to own the stuff that happened that was adverse also, but that's, that's essential. So giving up our power has us not have to own the bad, especially. But if we take our power back, yeah, there are some consequences to that. You know, if you create gaps instead of problems, there are consequences. You know, now we're oriented around opportunities and there's a risk. I like using this, this analogy of climbing a ladder with clients. You know, every one of these 40 foot extension ladders, 
every one of those rungs on that ladder are the same 12 inch distance from each other. But that first rung is a lot easier to climb emotionally than that 101st one up there, only because the stakes are higher. Once I own my power, once I say, you know, I'm the one, I'm the leader, I created this gap. Well, now I'm climbing that rung up there from victim. Oh, I'm climbing the first rung and I fell. It's not my fault. The stakes are much lower because I don't own much from that victim context. And so this is one of the opportunities of really creating a gap is that we are playing up on those upper rungs, but that's where we presumably want to get. We got this ladder out so we could get up there, not just so we could make a good show of climbing it from the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot as I help some companies in the role of CTO, that power imbalance. I'm working with a group and I actually am thankful that I could actually see the context over the content, but the content right now is vacation time. Like it's hard for us to know that it's three weeks a year. And of course, the context is more around autonomy and freedom to learn and own their day. I might be wrong on this. Sorry, all my ontological friends, but that's kind of what I saw. And I was just aware of the incredible power that I hold over their time. And for them to even approach and say, hey, can we relook at the vacation policies? Can we look at the PTO? Just made me aware of the fact that something that I might dismiss as, oh, it's not a big deal. We all do what we do. For my direct reports, it's a real hard thing to come to me with and raise the issue. And I think what Britt said around just being aware of the power that we have and to own that and then to say, well, what are my gaps or how do I want to reorient around this? I think, I think that would be the key here in how we deal with our direct reports. Absolutely. You use an interesting example there too, Etienne. This vacation schedule, like you hold the power and you have the final say. I want to really, really use that as an example, though, because it's important to be really specific about the way we're talking about creating gaps and taking our power back. It's not that you're going to disseminate vacation scheduling to every other person on the team. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about that those folks are empowered to and feel that they have the ability to come to you and say exactly what you said. Hey, can we take a look at this again and change it? That's where taking their power back comes from versus, well, he said this, and that's when I have to go on vacation, or he said no, and so therefore I have no options. That's where the power gets taken away. So it's not that you're going to give the power to everybody to take vacations whenever they want to or figure it out themselves. It's that they're all empowered to come and speak up when they see something, need something, or, or want something. That voice, I think, is the thing that we're talking about here in creating ownership of our leadership and ownership of our experience and, and ownership of our teams. Just as a practical application, and Britt, we might be veering a little bit, but you can bring us back. But just on this, a question I often have when I am in this power imbalance is when I ask someone, is everything going well and I'm doing my one-on-ones? Are you growing as you need to? Do you feel like you're being supported? I'm often aware of the fact that why on earth would they tell me stuff? And then I think to myself, well, how can I phrase things in a way that doesn't sound like a doofus? You know, it's like my kids when I say to them, how are things going? And they're like, fine. And I'm like, no, well, how are things really going? No, really fine. No, but if your life was a glass and there was water in it, is it more to the top? You know, I find myself having to rephrase, maybe for my own want, right? Like I want to feel good. Do you have any, as you coach executives and from your being the author of this, do you have anything that comes to mind in how we in that power imbalance can actually make us be more approachable to our followers or slash people? Absolutely. Yeah. First and foremost, it's remembering that hierarchy exists. It just exists. It's a thing. It's a, it's a structural phenomenon, but it doesn't have to be the place we lead from. I talk with a lot of companies about and leaders in organizations about flattening our organization. We want to flatten our organization so everybody has access to, to everybody else. That's great. And it makes a lot of sense, but hierarchy is still going to exist. <laughs> um, some people have a, a C before their names or a three-letter acronym that starts with C at the end of their names. And 
people are fundamentally, they've been there longer, they make more money, they have a bigger title, they're responsible for more things. Hierarchy exists, it exists in organizations, it exists in the world around us. The key though is our leaders leading from hierarchy. Like, am I taking my title and sort of issuing orders from it or using it as the source of my power? That's where that imbalance starts to show up. Fundamentally, that imbalance exists, but if I'm leading from it, it deepens the imbalance between you and me, not just our power, but between you and me as people, and it creates separation. So what I tell leaders, especially those with titles, is, hey, have your title, but don't lead from the hierarchy that it provides you. Lead from relationship and trust, which are the factors that you were referencing there when you talk about the people on our teams. You know, How do we actually instill these things? A relationship and trust have to be built by modeling that people are included, that their voices matter, that I hear them, that I'm listening. Not that I'm necessarily obeying them, but I also don't need them to just obey me. We don't want drones. We don't want people who are just going to do what we told them to do. We want people who are going to, who are going to take a look at, well, what more could I do? And how could I do this differently? Or how could we do this better? So starting one-on-ones with your CTO is well-pleased with your performance. It's maybe not a good idea. You're asking questions that are very open-ended. So how's it going? <laughs> well, look, uh, you know, if my boss asks me that from a hierarchical position, everything's fine. Everything's yeah, going great. Yeah. Let me just interrupt there. I'm sorry to do this, but yeah. I just want to make sure the hierarchical awareness can come from the bottom up worse than from the top down, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and how does one deal with that? I might be all fuzzy, wuzzy, huggy, yummy. But my direct report might be like, dude, this is the CTO. I mean, I can't say stuff. He's asking me what I did this weekend. And I'm like, oh, should I tell them? <laughs> well, I mean, some of those are technical terms, fuzzy wuzzy necessarily. You, you might have to define those first. But I think, I think it's important, though, to remember that we're talking about building a relationship. So it's not like I'm walking into the CTO's office for the first time and sharing with them about all the weird stuff I did this weekend. I'm actually going to be building a relationship with this person over time. So I'm going to have an understanding of when this person asks me how my weekend was, you know, I'm going to actually tell them because I know what they mean when they ask. One of the games I play is everybody gets asked at least once a day, how are you doing? What I challenge clients to do is tell the truth. So whenever anybody asks me how I'm doing, I tell the truth. And it ain't always, I'm fine. <laughs> In fact, very rarely is it that I'm fine. So one of two things is going to happen when you tell this kind of truth. First of all, people are either going to like it or not. Like, you know, they're either going to like that you told the truth or they're not. Second of all, if they didn't like it, if they didn't really want to hear the answer, they're not going to ask again. So this eliminates the inauthenticity in our relationship. And now, oh, I know that if I ask Mark how he's doing, he's going to tell me. And if I don't really want to know, I'm not going to ask him. I, Mark, am happy for that too. I don't want anybody asking me that if they don't really want to know. So. I'm building relationship with people on my teams simply by answering their questions. You know, when somebody comes and says, Mark, how are you doing? I tell them. So I'm building that trust and that understanding and relationship that when they come and ask me a question, they're going to get an authentic answer. So as a leader, I want to be doing that with my teams. And you talk about that in reverse. Well, notice how that leader is response to questions. When that leader asks you or has asked you in the past, how was your weekend? Are they really listening to the answer? Maybe, maybe not. If they're really listening, great. This person wants to hear, so I'm going to answer. If they're not really answering, I might simply say, you know, it's going great, thanks. Or I might decide to tell them anyway. So it's really a choice. Like, do I want, what's the relationship I want to build with this person? You know, I tend to want to build pretty authentic relationships in my world, not just at work. And so when people ask me questions like that, I tell them the truth, even if it's going to be uncomfortable. So I think what I love about that is and Britt worked with us on this a lot last year, which is setting the intention for the relationship. I could possibly, as the one with the hierarchical power, invite my direct reports and say, hey, when I ask how things are going, I invite you to tell me what's going on. And my commitment to you is to do the same. And I love what you said around, I'm not going to just ask you the templated questions if I don't mean it or I don't really want to know. And I think that these are such simple, small things that we BS ourselves on all the time. Yeah. Look, a more direct way to do that is when that direct report walks into your office, say, hey, tell me three things that could be going better. 
Now I'm not asking this sort of generic, how you doing question, which is, is relatively passive. I'm asking a very pointed question. I'm not putting them on the spot. I'm asking them for their input. I'm, I'm creating partnership. I'm so creating good. collaboration. So good. And I'm doing that thing that the best leaders do, which is create leaders around me who are encouraged and empowered to share their voice and what they see. So asking more direct questions is a great way to create that. Like, I don't, I'm not just asking generically how you're doing. No, I'm great. I'm a little hungry. That's not what I'm after. I'm actually after what's going on. What can we be doing better? What's working really well? You know, tell me two or three things. It kind of ties back into where we started, which is that in us deciding who we want to be as a leader really informs what questions we're going to ask. And we have to meet them where they're at. So if at first we ask, how are you? And we see that somebody who reports to us is like, oh, I'm fine. It's not suddenly like, no, 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 trust me, right? You might just keep asking and demonstrating over time that you actually care and are interested versus be like, wait, wait, you must have an idea of our hierarchy because you're not answering me, right? It's like putting your stuff in the space. Absolutely. I love that. I think you have to model it. If you're going to ask people to do it, you've got to be modeling with them to show them that, that it's a safe space, that this is actually something, oh, he really wants to know. Like he's really asking. And so when people... When I ask people how they're doing and they tell me, I remember what they said. Oh, yeah, I played with the kids and did this. I'm like, Great. The next time I'm going to ask, well, how are the kids doing? So I'm going to remember things about people. Look, if I'm, we're talking about relationships. This isn't some formula from which to get some result from. We're talking also about building relationships with people so that our experience of work is empowered, so that their experience of trust and having a relationship with the people we work with is empowered. So I'm actually looking forward to doing what I'm doing, not just suffering so as to get to the result. This is an old model of leadership. Do whatever it takes, burn the midnight oil. You know, these are old sort of antiquated versions of getting to where we want to be. Now, I want to actually have a group of leaders around me who are going to give me their ideas. And hopefully they're, they're as smart, if not smarter than me, if I'm doing a good job of building teams around me. And they're going to give me ideas that I couldn't see with just my two eyes. So that's the goal we're after here is I want more input. I want more ideas. I want to have them have a say in the way we get there as much as that we get there. Thank you so much. This It was really beneficial to bring the brink to life, even though that's what we're all doing in our leadership. And we look forward to the next book. So thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. And we might ask you back because I have about 18,000 other questions around leadership. So Let's do it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much.